Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program about the facts, the fun and perhaps the fiction of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we will road test the Toyota Camry, the latest model of which belies its bland image. And in our feature interview with Evan Jones, we talk about the Bathurst 1000. He was an official at the event. It was a good event, but there may be some trouble brewing. We rotest the Hyundai Ionic 6 and discuss the role of volunteers in motorsport. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. Just look up Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 14th of October 2023. There are two aspects that have led to the Toyota Camry having a dull image. One is historic. Early models were seen very much as an old person's car, practical but bland. More recently, they have established themselves as being the first choice for a taxi or Uber vehicle a class of vehicle that is not often seen as being sophisticated. Both are unfair to quite an advanced car, which as a sedan represents a good alternative to an SUV. The Camry is now classified as a medium-sized sedan in the below $60,000 group. While this group in the past may have had quite a number of competitors, there are now only three players of any significance the Camry, the Skoda Octavia and the Mazda 6. But even then, the Camry accounts for some 70% of this market segment, even though supply has been very constrained and the waiting list is long. Medium sedans above $60,000 is a much broader category, traditionally dominated by European vehicles, such as Audis, BMWs, Jaguars, Mercedes, Peugeots and Volvo and some Japanese vehicles such as Lexus. But this more prestige category has been totally shaken up by the advent of the Tesla Model 3, which so far this year accounts for more than 58% of this prestige category. In the lower-priced group, the Camry pins a lot of its success on its hybrid technology. In the last upgrade, the hybrid powertrain was made available in every grade. There are still two powertrains available, the non-hybrid 2.5-litre four-cylinder, which is only available on the base model and has 152 kilowatts of power, and the hybrid, which has slightly more power at 160 kilowatts, but more importantly, the electric motors give some much-appreciated low-down torque. The great selling point of the hybrid is its fuel consumption which is rated at 4.7 litres per 100 kilometres when compared to the 6.8 litres per 100k of the non-hybrid version. This is still not bad for the non-hybrid car for its class and size of vehicle, but is 44% higher than the Camry hybrid figure. These are rated figures determined in a laboratory type situation. We achieved an overall figure closer to 5.7 litres per 100 mainly dominated by country trips. The great benefit of hybrids that is not emphasised enough, in our opinion, that the fuel consumption figure in urban areas is very similar to rural travel, and in some cases even better. The other positive feature of the hybrid is that it meets the highest pollution reduction standards of Euro 6. 
The exterior design of the Camry is certainly more sophisticated than the general image in the public's mind and gives a well-balanced large sedan look with a bit of bling, particularly around the front of the car. The interior is up to date in its looks, although with an infotainment screen that is only 9 inches and looks like it's been tacked onto a standard dashboard, it's not as futuristic as some. However, more modern designs, particularly those associated with electric vehicles, may be a bit overwhelming to someone who has grown up with older vehicles. On the upmarket Camry models, the screen in front of the driver, between the two dials, has increased in size to 7 inches, but the information is in small font and symbols and finicky to navigate around. They say the voice recognition is improved, but it can still struggle at motorway speeds with the increased noise to hear clearly what you are saying. The great benefit of the overall design is the space for occupants, and with a boot space of 515 litres, it becomes a very usable vehicle. The boot space doesn't have the flexibility or potential capacity of a station wagon or an SUV where you can fold down the second row of seats, but it is large, but it is a self-contained cargo space that secures items so they cannot fly around in the cabin injuring occupants in the case of an accident. Driving the car around the city, you find it smooth and comfortable enough to be non-intrusive. You don't become impacted by its drivetrain performance. It tours well on the boring motorways, although setting up things like lane keep assist again is a bit finicky and does not instill immediate confidence. We took it on a long drive, which included the secondary road from Junee to Gundagai in the southern part of New South Wales. On this narrower road, with the occasional twisting corners, the Camry was clearly competent and made it very enjoyable to drive. It had enough power and stability to carry out overtaking manoeuvres and cope with tight corners. The sports model comes with a significant price increase, and the the top-of-the-range luxury model, the SL, which is the model we drove, has another steep financial climb. But the SL does have several positive features. The biggest thing is the panoramic roof that extends back over the rear seats. It also has heated and cool seats for the front occupants, and it's certainly quieter than, say, the Corolla, helped by the fact that the the top-of-the-range model does not go for the bigger 19-inch wheels that you can get on the sporty SX model. The 18-inch rims means that you do not have to have the lower-profile tyres, which may improve handling in the more extreme situations, but can increase the stiffness of the ride and the noise that you get from the road. I think that's a very positive way to go about it. A little disappointing with the the top-of-the-line Camry is that it has no wireless charging slot. You can open the boot with power, but you have to manually shut it, And the human-machine interface, how well the vehicle provides information to the driver, is not Toyota's strongest point, but is certainly improved. The base model Ascent non-hybrid starts at $34,300 plus on-road costs. The base model with a hybrid powertrain is an extra $2,500. The SX Sports model is $43,000 and the the top-of-the-line SL is $50,320, all plus on-road costs. 
In summary, if you are looking for a good quality sedan vehicle, put aside past images of Camry and consider the vehicle, particularly with the hybrid powertrain, for its smooth, efficient operation. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, last weekend was the Bathurst 1000, the 60th anniversary, I believe, and one of the officials there was our good friend Evan Jones, who joins us on the line now. G'day, Evan. Hi, how are It was a, well, in some ways, uneventful. There wasn't that many safety cars. Uh, it was, in some ways, a pure long-distance race. Yes, in fact, the last green flag session, I think, the longest on record. Since they brought in safety cars. Yes. And I think uh, only three or four failed to finish. So, I mean, it was really yes. an incredible run of some very fast and new cars. And from memory, I think there's only one car, one, maybe one, maybe two cars were due to accidents. Um, the others that stopped were mechanical failures. So the driving standards is quite high. And these were the new cars, weren't they? Correct. Yeah, these are cars that are supposed to have a little bit less aero, supposed to be a little bit harder to drive. But they did run a new tyre, a, a very soft tyre. I think that had something to do with it. Yeah, on the visions you would have seen uh, on the TV, the areas of the track that were off off the racing line were just covered in tyre debris because of the soft tyres. But on the upside, because these tyres are soft, they, they grip incredibly well, and so therefore there's less sliding, so there's less chance of error hitting the wall. Without, as long as you don't push, as always, beyond your limits. The the Correct. crowd, the crowd seemed very uh, positive, seemed very uh, significant. Do you think it was a, um, crowd figures are not always necessarily representing the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The crowd looked big. It did. It, it wasn't a record crowd, according to the organisers, but it was up there. Um, they were blessed with incredible weather. So I think that had a lot to do with it. Because we no longer have Holdens. No Holdens, no Falcons. We have two cars with identical chassis with different bodies and different engines. Oh, really? They are actually identical chassis, are they? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. So the parity is not much of an issue then. Well, actually, it's a major issue. That's the trouble. The aero parity is a major issue, and there was a lot of politics up there about that. The Chev has allegedly always enjoyed uh, a superior aero package to the Mustang, and there was a lot of talk about that. You would have seen through, throughout the year the Chev has absolutely dominated the series this year and there was talk that maybe the Fords would get a, a an update and they all had their new updates made and ready to go only to be told at the last minute no you can't use them that caused quite a lot of angst and I think if you watch the media in the next few weeks there'll be a fair bit more angst about that. Does that change the visuals can you will you be able to see the differences if they bring in these updates? Is it what, just wings or bits around the front air dams and so on? Yeah, there's little nuances around the front air dam. I think there's a couple of bits and pieces underneath that you can't see. I'm not sure the rear wings change much. What the Fords want to do is move their uh, their aero package 
So it's like their downforce slightly rearward towards the car, rearwards on the car. They apparently have too much front and not enough rear, so the the cars are um, skittish and understeering. So I noticed was it in qualifying that there seemed to be a, a dominance of the Camaro, the General Motors product. I can't remember, but at the end, I think one and two were Camaros, but then there was a a fair number of Fords. Yeah, they were a fair way back though. That's the thing. When you set up a, a car for a qualifying, the car is, by its nature, nervous because you want it to turn in really quickly and do this and do that incredibly fast and react really well, which is good, but is also hard on tyres over a period of time. So for over one or two quality laps, that's great. But sustained, you'll wear out your tyres much faster. Now, that's what I've always said. The Mustang's a really good qualifier, but the Camaro's a race winner because of the way the aero packages work. We've often talked about that last time, of course, people wearing the Camaro and then the Ford merchandise. And that Was that prominent? Is Have they picked up the Camaro? Are there, the Mustang, I think, has a, a longer tradition or a bigger tradition here in Australia. The General Motors, was there people waving their flags and wearing and more particularly paying for their T-shirts? I think people nowadays, they buy uh, the merchandise according to the team that they uh, ah. support rather than the actual brand because the brand, for the most part, now is irrelevant in this country. I believe now you probably, that was your last Bathurst race. My Tesla friend, as I mentioned earlier, uh, is moving to the, uh, the North Shore, so uh, my accommodation has is drying up. So by the time the next race comes around, uh, I'll have no accommodation, and, and I'm sorry and all that. I'm just not going. I'm not prepared to pay huge amounts of money. Yeah, I, I think I've told the story. A friend of mine who used to be an official went to went to Monaco one year to watch the historic Formula One, mm. and he stayed in Nice, and he would travel from Nice down to Monaco every day on the train. That in that accommodation plus his. Uh, entry fee plus his transport was less than the cost of accommodation at Bathurst to be an official. See, this raises the point. Officials not only donate their time, but they aren't subsidised to any great extent. Uh, Would they cover your petrol to get to Bathurst? No, no. Well, it's a reflection, of course, of the the great support of volunteers who have kept motor racing going for all this time. There are those that are now making big money at the top end of it. Let's hope they don't lose sight of those that have uh, kept it going, given its credibility, and keep it going into the future. You're listening to Overdrive. We've driven uh, the electric vehicle, the Ionic 6, the Hyundai, which, of course, is the brave new world rather than the somewhat manufactured, contrived world of motor racing. It is an attempt to get a vehicle, an electric vehicle, another one from Hyundai, onto the market with a very distinctive shape. Now, we talked about aerodynamics. This is a car that whose looks 
is very much dominated by its aerodynamic efficiencies. Yeah, actually agree, 100%. Particularly when you compare it to its sibling, the Ionic 5. Yeah. The Ionic 5, you can see obvious uh, SUV routes with it. Although, to be fair, it's a very handsome car. Where your Ionic 6, as you say, is all about aerodynamics and obviously aimed at someone who wants a sedan, not an SUV. You could argue, I suppose, the Ionic 6 is almost pointed at the Tesla 3 rather than with the Ionic 6. The Ionic 5 is pointed um, probably more at the uh, at the Y. I think certainly Tesla has blurred the lines or perhaps even reignited interests and certainly sales in some sedans in the category. The three was in the category of the Camry we were talking about. Yes. That category was dominated by the Camry, but now it's it's being totally dominated by Tesla, not so much in capturing what other people had, but creating new sales in what was a, a fairly declining category. Correct, yeah. I think from memory that Tesla 3 is now the highest-selling sedan-type vehicle in Australia. I haven't checked the latest figures, but I, I would not be at all surprised if that was the case. See, the aerodynamics, the uh, Hyundai, the Ionic 6, doesn't have rear vision mirrors on the outside. It has inside, it has the standard one in the middle of the windscreen looking back. But the outside, of course, are cameras. And it has those screens inside. Did you find that hard to get used to? Um, a little while, you better remember to look in the corner of the cab rather than look out the window yeah. for the driver's side. Passenger side was quite easy to get used to. But having said that, the, 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 the driver, driver's one you picked up really quickly. Its location whilst inside the car wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. It's a case where that aerodynamic, I think, is to reduce wind as much as it is to try and uh, wind resistance, as it is to try and be technically clever, probably a bit of each, but particularly reducing wind resistance once you get up to motorway speeds. Not an area that a current electric vehicle is necessarily at its efficient best the higher speeds, given it's only got a one speed, uh, doesn't have a, a various ranges in the gearbox. So I, I think that might be one of its most compelling reasons why they've gone in that direction. I, I would agree. Um, I think the Ionic 6 concept and design is driven entirely by aero efficiency. So if you go back to the Tesla, uh, a friend of mine has a Tesla 3, and we, I don't know if you've noticed, the Tesla tree's got like a, a disc-like wheel when you first look at it. That's actually um, a bolt-in um, cover. And we saw a Tesla without that cover. And the wheels actually look quite nice. So the plan was, oh, we'll take that. We'll, we'll, when he picks the car up, we'll have the covers taken off. And the Tesla dealer said, yeah, no problem. But you know that if you take them off, you're going to take about 20 kilometres of range off your car. Yes. I said, what do you mean? He said, those covers are designed to clean up the airstream to the point where you will actually pick up an extra 20 kilometres of range. Needs to say, the covers stayed on the car. You mentioned in our talking about Bathurst the nuances of 
aerodynamics. Electric vehicles has really brought that into or brought that to the fore, hasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hyundai has a good range. It was about 430 we got. It's probably rated at about 480. Did you enjoy driving it? I did. I did. It was uh, it handled quite nicely. I haven't come across an electric car yet that doesn't handle well. I think it's probably because all its weight is all on the floor with the battery, so a low centre of gravity is always a good thing. But it handled nicely. The adjustability of the regen was really good, so you can adjust it like a normal, so it felt like a normal car, or you could adjust it so it broke really hard if you left it off. So the acceleration, particularly in sport, is something akin to warp drive. It was incredible. It was incredible. They're very good and great throttle response, isn't it? Yes, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. Uh, Eco, it's a slug. It gives you more range, but I don't think Eco gives you enough range to warrant its use, to be honest. Uh, if you want to have a more fulfilling drive, either normal or, or sport is the go. You don't lose that much range with sport, which is quite surprising. Yeah. But a brilliant car to drive. And, and you might recall in one of our drives, it got us out, a bit of, out of a bit of trouble with a recalcitrant uh, BMW driver. Let's just say. Well, some would consider that a redundant term in some regards. I, I have some videos of a driver of that brand going down the M7 doing the most ridiculous things to try and hurry along the car in front of them, which was in a line of traffic anyway. Back to the Hyundai, again, it has that wonderful aspect of an electric vehicle that it is wonderfully quiet. The soundproofing in the car is uh, astounding. That's the only way to put it. If you want to drive around in total peace and quiet, this is the car for you. But having said that, the sound system is amazing and easy to operate, uh, which is good, which is really good. The, uh, it's got that big continuous screen, which seems to be a, a, a Hyundai trait down there, electric cars, but it's easy to uh, get used to and easy to operate, which I'm really happy about. It still beeps at you, and you've got to reset every time you turn it on if you are uh, indicating that you're over the speed limit, which sounds like a good safety issue, but when you have 40 kilometre an hour speed zones that uh, don't operate at some most of the times of the day, I do find it rather uh, annoying, uh, to, say, to say the least. I've got to talk about charging. This is uh, more of an issue than I think we give coverage to most of the coverage is about the number of charges but not all charges are created equal not are all easy to get to uh, and the whole approach well the setup for charging at the moment is incredibly frustrating one of the first problems is that they put a number of charging stations quite a few uh, in supermarkets which in itself I understand, and we've talked about in the past, that will encourage people to leave their car there and go to the supermarket. Firstly, within any supermarket parking station, multi-level parking station, it is a labyrinth. It is a maze to try and get to. And so while you, your system may direct you to the parking station, it can become extremely difficult to then find the place to actually do the charging 
In one case, it wasn't clearly marked and we drove past it. It was full anyway. And so we didn't see the charging and we thought we'd missed it and we got out and we walked around. In another case, the signposting in parking stations is appalling and almost non-existent to get to the charging location. Once you get there and it's full, there is no etiquette or no system of which you can join a clear queue and know when you're going to be able to get your access to the location. It proved to be incredibly frustrating. Some of the charging stations have a a dial on them that will tell you how much charge is left, but that doesn't guarantee the person will come back. The whole thing is proving to be extremely frustrating. What makes it worse is the the growth in sales of electric cars is far greater than the growth of the installation of charging points. Yeah. Uh, My friend up in Bathurst with his Tesla, they found out that more Teslas were turning up in Bathurst, but not that many more charging points were going in. And he's now moving to the North Shore very shortly into a block of units uh, where there's two power points in the car park, which are occupied by someone else anyway. So he's going to have charge. It's going to be quite a challenge for him. I was left with the impression that I wouldn't want to be owning an electric vehicle without having a pretty good charging station at home, which tends to eliminate units and having to queue up or get some approach to getting some system that allows you to do it. No, it certainly needs to be improved. They are going to the point now that if you leave it on the charger, you will keep getting charged even if you get 100% full battery so that there is a parking charge for doing that. Some of them are interesting. The first half an hour is free in some of them, but quite a lot of them now didn't have any cables. And so the Hyundai we had had cables for plugging into a normal PowerPoint, but didn't have cable for plugging from a fast charger to the car. Now, the great thing about the Hyundai was it will take a very, very fast charge, but not all chargers will give that to you by any stretch of the imagination. And so uh, overall, I I think that it's still very much a vehicle for someone who has their own charging at home. Mm. I've noticed they're starting to turn up at some service stations too. There's a, a BP up the road from from here that has two charging points on it, so I suppose that's encouraging. Yeah. yeah I'm not sure what their power is. Though. Because the other issue is, and we struggled a little bit, that the, the Ionic 6 does have a vehicle to load. So you can plug in a, an adapter into the standard entry level for power, but it becomes an exit level. It's got then a, a three-point plug at the other end. So I can I could boil a kettle, a kettle or run some lights, not necessarily a lot. You wouldn't want to necessarily try and run too much off it. But in the case of a blackout like that, you don't have a battery fixed at home, but you might be able to use the battery in the car. 
I've, yeah, I've, I've started to hear that's a bit of a selling point for some of these cars that you know, they can operate as a as a pseudo uh, house battery. As you say, as long as you don't run too many things, but you'll have lights and mm. you see you might be able to boil a kettle. Um, that's got to be a plus. Or perhaps even run the fridge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Lovely to talk to you, mate. As always, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Dave. And that's Evan Jones, who was an official at the Bathurst 1000, but also our road tester, where we looked at the Hyundai Ionic 6 all-electric vehicle. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Evan Jones and Mark Wesley for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or links to the socials and podcasts, look up cars, transport, culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.